Hi, everyone. This is Lamar Stanley, your host of the M&A Source Podcast. A quick note about today's episode. This episode is a repurposed recording of the audio from one of M&A Source's monthly webinars. These are invaluable webinars intended to both teach and familiarize M&A Source's membership base with the useful tools and member benefits provided to the members. We will on occasion provide these to the podcast listeners when we think the content provided suits this medium. If you like this episode and would like to see the slides that the speakers are referencing, head on over to MA Sources website, masource.org. And if you're not a member, unfortunately, this content won't be available to you just yet, but you can join MA Source to view this webinar as well as the rest of the webinar library, in addition to accessing many other membership benefits and resources. So with that, enjoy the episode. Welcome to the M&A Source Podcast, a podcast brought to you by M&A Source, a nonprofit professional organization that provides training and education for small to mid-sized business mergers and acquisitions intermediaries. In each episode of the podcast, we will interview leaders in the M&A world to discuss education opportunities provided by M&A Source, trends in M&A markets, and useful insights provided by the experts that use them. Thank you for joining us. Hello, everyone. Again, welcome again to the M&A Source webinar series. And as Kylie mentioned, I'm uh, a director with Lead Capital Partners, a healthcare-focused private equity firm based in Nashville, Tennessee. But this isn't about me. It's about, um, one, uh, our webinar series today is sponsored by Live Oak Bank. And they're terrific sponsors, both of M&A Source and our biannual conferences. Um, so if you're watching and listening at home and not already attending those, please make sure and do so. They're great events uh, and largely thanks to folks like Live Oak. And I don't have to tell you much about Live Oak today because we're joined by one of their team members today, John Wall from their Denver office. So welcome, John. Thanks, Lamar. I appreciate it. Well, John, I, I intentionally didn't go into a lot about Live Oak because that's a lot about what we're going to be talking today. But before we do that, could you please give us a little bit about your background and kind of how you got to Live Oak and, and your interaction with MA Source? Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate the opportunity to partner and be a sponsor with MA Source. Um, we have been on and off over the years, and obviously the conferences have been a little unique during the COVID time. But uh, as you mentioned, I'm based here in Denver, Colorado, have been in M&A lending for the last 17 years and commercial lending for the last 20 years. Back in 2018, Live Oak Bank uh, expanded to uh, their industry agnostic uh, business lending through M&A transactions and brought me on board to help grow our team both in the Western and Eastern US. So have came on board, been here for about four and a half years, was at a large national uh, bank prior to that. And so it's been a, been a great home and um, very unique in, on how we do things and how we approach this lower middle market. Yeah. Well, that that's exactly why we wanted to bring you on today. And this is particularly relevant to our membership base because what you guys are expert in experts in is exactly what we like to talk about, which is structuring lower middle market transactions. And, and, and I've actually Unlike our watchers today, had a chance already to roll through your deck, and you guys are firmly leaders in that lower middle market uh, financing region. And the way I'd like to structure this today, in light of how great the content is in your slides, is 
if you want to just drive through the slides, I'll probably pop in from time to time and ask questions that I know others are thinking about. Um, but uh, I'll try and hold as many of my questions as I have them until the end, and I'll ask those, and then we'll also pass it to the audience to ask more questions in, if that works for you. Yeah, absolutely. This is, uh, I want this to be as interactive and as high value as possible for all the M&A source attendees today. And uh, hopefully a lot of the content that I provide will be new and will be beneficial for their day to day, but encourage everyone to jot down some questions. And as Lamar mentioned, uh, I'm sure he'll have some that everyone else will as well. Yeah, and, and just to reiterate that, I think Kylie mentioned it as well, but just fire them into the chat as you have them, um, and we'll we'll hold till the end and, and try to get to everybody's questions. But with that, John, go ahead. Yeah, no, that sounds great. So yeah, with today's presentation, looking to provide some financing alternatives um, for transactions in that one to $12 million range, that upper Main Street, lower middle market, you know, we at Live Oak uh, tend to play above that million dollar and below that uh, 12 million when it comes to a lot of our transactions. We do have some facilities that we'll get into that uh, work for clients even larger than that. So a little bit about, about myself, I manage our general lending team for the Western United States. Uh, a colleague of mine, John Randall, who actually has a very, very similar background, manages the Eastern United States. He's based out of Indianapolis. Um, all my contacts will be part of this presentation as well. Um, so wanted to give you a little bit of background about who Live Oak Bank is, because we, we are not your typical bank. We um, are laser focused on what we provide, but just some accolades. You know, We have been the largest SBA lender by dollar amount. We've also been the number one USDA lender. Um, we do have a national footprint on where we lend. That's a question that people often ask. We're branchless though. You couldn't walk in and deposit a check if you wanted to. Um, we don't have depository products. We are not a widget bank of selling this, that, and the other, um, which makes us again, focused on providing efficient and streamlined process for M&A transactions. We are headquartered in Wilmington, North Carolina. Um, some on this call may have actually visited our campus uh, over the last year. Uh, we're always happy to have folks come and meet our executive team, see what our campus, uh, it's kind of a Google Apple-esque type of environment. Um, FDI insured and started in 2008 and for for many on this call that have been in uh, in the M&A business and in Len, um, it, it just in the business environment since then, uh, not one of the best times to to start a bank given the recession, but we survived through it. We were one of the last charters to be issued. Um, since that time, we've funded over 12,000 loans for almost $20 billion in transactions. So. With our rifle approach to M&A lending, um, SBA, USDA, and conventional provides for streamlined process for you and all of your clients. So kind of uh, to give you a little bit of overview, you know, our founder, Chip Mahan, who's active in, in, in the day-to-day -day business um, on the board and as a co-founder, you know, back in 2008, had founded Live Oak Bank along with Encino in 2011. We have taken on number of types of uh, JV 
opportunities and kind of created a model bank of where we test drive a lot of technology in the fintech world and have deployed that in various uh, settings and within our own model bank over the years. So if you're familiar with Live Oak and you followed us since our inception, you knew that we are very vertical oriented. Um, when we were started, we were known as the puppy bank um, and had since because of our focus on veterinary vets. Um, we actually have a vet on staff because of our legacy portfolio and our assistance that we provide our borrowers within that industry. Over the years, we've added one every year or so up until about 2017, where we had a director of emerging markets, where they continued to add a number in every year. Again, in 2017, late 2017, our M&A division or industry agnostic uh, general lending division was founded by uh, two ladies on the West Coast, Lisa Forrest and Heather Anderson that have been in this business even longer than I have and who currently direct our search funder sponsor group. So currently though, although we have these verticals that are dedicated and have domain experts, and I don't mean lenders that have only lent in these industry, I mean individuals that may have owned businesses in these verticals as part of our bank, our bank employees. Um, so we are industry agnostic. So within our M&A group, our general lending, we are industry agnostic with the exception of some high risk industries, gas station, golf courses, hospitality, um, a few other industries, but 99% of the NIAC codes out there are businesses that we will lend in. As far as our coverage area, across the United States. We have taken some of the best SBA lenders that are out there and filled most of the metro areas and urban corridors. Currently, we have 28 lenders and this was updated two weeks ago and since then we've actually added uh, two more folks um, on both the eastern and western US. Um, I think what's really unique about these individuals is the experience that they bring to the table with over 20 years of average working experience in SBA lending with a dedicated focus on M&A lending. And that's really unique in the market. You don't see that. You see most of the lenders in this uh, are relatively new with an average production of about $8 million a year. The lenders that we have on our team are producing anywhere from 25 to $50 million a year in production. And more importantly though, is our approval ratio that sits at about 95.5%. So a lot of this can be based on common sense prevails approach to lending, an incredible culture and technology platform. And here is what the Eastern US looks like as well. And this isn't critical for you all to know each one of these individuals, myself or my colleague, John Randall, um, are easy to get a hold of and put you in contact with folks that are nearest to where you may be. Is that 
John, how you all divvy it out. Let's say a member today would like to get in touch with you and they're in Florida and they have a deal that they're working on near there. Are you guys limited ge geographically or by vertical or, or will you work on something somewhere else? We're not. Yeah. So all these folks are, so they're industry agnostic. So if there is um, somebody that wants to get in touch, say a deal in Florida and maybe it's in uh, Fort Myers where Tammy Teese is at, um, we're non-commissioned salespeople, which is quite different in the industry as well. Um, our CEO is more in having each of us be owners of the bank. So there's not that competitive uh, approach between the lenders that we have on the team. So if it was an industry agnostic transaction, Tammy Teese would, I'd be happy to put somebody in touch with, you know, her in Fort Myers. And even if it was a vertical type of transaction, you know, we partner and collaborate with our vertical domain experts on a daily basis just because of the added value that they bring to a transaction. When you're right. talking to a, a buyer or seller in those realms, there's certain things that uh, are just unique to specific industries. So, okay, great. Yeah, so, you know, our tagline I think is one that really illustrates who we are and how we impact the world. Um, and we're dedicated to the doers, uh, like you who are impacting the world. So that's not just M&A advisors, investment bankers, brokers, but borrowers as well, and entrepreneurs all the way across. So um, if you have ever been to our campus or talked to people, but you'll hear, you know, treat each customer like they're our only customer. And that truly is how we take on each transaction. Um, just a quick bragging right, and then I'm, I'll move on to why everyone came, not for the commercial, but really how we, uh, what facilities we offer. But it is important to illustrate that when you focus on one thing and you're good at it, it makes a big difference in how you separate yourself from your competition. So there's over 1,700 SBA lenders, but the top 50 of them did roughly the top 50 lenders or 3.4% of them did 50% of the total transactions that were done over the last few years. So something interesting to touch base on there. So now really getting into, you know, what are the lending options that we offer? So I've broken these next couple of slides down into a variety of transactional types. Um, you may be familiar with some of them. You may not be familiar with others of them. So wanted to dig in there and I'm sure we'll have a number of questions as, as we kind of go through this. So first of all, traditional SBA financing. Um, a lot of folks, um, even in the lower middle market, don't know what the dollar maximums are when it comes to SBA lending. So wanted to just to kind of point out some of the overall requirements and characteristics on traditional SBA 7A financing. So can provide up to a $5 million loan amount, requires a personal guarantee from any and all individuals that are 20% or greater. Um, I asterisk that in individual because I've seen people try to structure SBA transactions where maybe it's 15% wife, 15% husband, um, any family, uh, spousal or joint filers that are combined 20% or greater do have to provide a personal guarantee. These personal guarantees are unlimited and unconditional. Um, for these acquisition transactions, we look at a minimum of 10% equity injection. 
that equity injection can come from a variety of sources. It does not have to come from our guarantor. It can come from institutional investors. It can come from friends and family. It can come from a variety of sources. So with these SBA loans, they are 10 years. They are fully amortized. Uh, there is a variety of interest rate options available to the borrowers based off the risk of the transaction. On these, we obtain a 75% guarantee from the US government. There's a fee that we collect that funds this insurance pool that goes to funding bad loans. So um, that 75% guarantee doesn't mean that we do every single deal just because it's got a heartbeat. Um, we are cash flow lenders. I think that's something that really differentiates us from other lenders in this market is that we are not looking for a specific collateral requirement, a one-to-one -one ratio on a discounted basis or something along those lines. The other really nice thing about SBA financing is that there are no loan covenants. Um, we do monitor these. We do have uh, our business analyst group touch base with borrowers on a quarterly basis to review financials but there are no covenants such as leverage, liquidity, excess cash flow recapture, anything along those sorts of lines that um, would be a requirement or a restriction. Um, one thing that I think is also important to be able to bring up is um, expansion through acquisition. We see a lot of roll-ups in the transactions that we do and through the SBA program, it allows us to finance even up to 100% of a transaction. If an individual or entity is in a like-kind business and acquiring a competitor or maybe doing a vertical or horizontal integration. Um, so something unique is that 100% financing for expansion through acquisition. Um, we also see that real estate in a lot of transactions uh, will be rolled into these loans. We don't require that it's the same borrowing entity. They can be separated out to an LLC and an S-Corp or C-Corp or anything uh, along those lines. So we will typically roll real estate into these transactions as well. When we do so, we can look at a blended term and amortization. Um, there are situations where if we're, uh, opportunity has more than 51% of the use of proceeds going towards real estate, we can take the entire term and amortization to 25 years, which obviously helps significantly with cash flow. So, yeah. One quick question, not to anchor on the one of the limitations, but you mentioned the personal guarantee. Is there a, a burn off at a certain time or or just as our members advise clients and talk to buyers about the options out there? Yeah, so on the SBA side, there is not a burn off option. You know, once you're a 20% guarantor, once you're a 20% owner on that, that is unlimited, unconditional on that. So even if someone was to drop below that 20%, um, there are challenges to releasing that guarantee, um, you know, based off of the seasoning of the loan, the strength of that individual at the time of that request. So um, what I tell borrowers is 
And you typically see individuals using the SBA financing primarily or groups, partnerships using this is that, you know, once you once you kind of get into this program, anticipate that you're going to be on it till the end. The, the interesting thing that I think, too, is although these are 10 year term and amortization, our average lifespan of these is only about six or seven years. So folks are paying them off early or they're selling the business or they're rolling them into different types of financing. So you get it. Okay. So one that I think uh, a slide that I think is going to apply probably the most to this group of listeners is our combination financing. And really it, it's called that because we are taking the SBA maximum loan amount of $5 million and pairing it with another financing facility. Um, either it's a parapasu, which just means, you know, it's Latin for equal footing, which really means that our secondary loan is going to have a shared lien position on that, both terms are gonna have the same amortization, same rate, um, no covenants um, with that, and will really act as just two loans, same terms, everything along those lines. With that type of transaction, we have a maximum loan amount of seven and a half million dollars. So um, moving on to the SBA conventional combination, this is where you would pair the $5 million SBA maximum loan with a $4 million conventional junior lien position. So you have the 5 million and then our conventional debt is going to take a true junior position on it, not a shared position on that. And given such, we are typically going to have that conventional debt be on a shorter term and amortization. Um, not the 10 years that the SBA loan is, but typically five to seven. We'd like to be out a little bit earlier, given that our exposure is a little higher on that. Um, and I think it's important, and I'll point out in this, is that as we see transactions go above that $5 million max and venture into this combination financing, you start to deal with a more technical borrower or buyer group where their CPA and their advisors and attorney start to talk more heavily about seller carry financing. Um, and with these larger transactions, we see seller carry financing be a lot more uh, vital to being able to get the transaction done. Um, we as an organization don't require seller carry notes on any type of transaction. There are a lot of lenders out there that that's just their, their policy and requirement. And so, you know, one nice thing that we see, you know, if you have, a, and I will go through some examples later, but if you have a $9 million financing transaction, you have a buyer bringing in 10 or 15%, and then you have a seller carrying 10 or 15%. One thing that we see a lot of buyers and their um, advisors start to structure on the seller carry notes are some sorts of forgiveness provisions or you know, gross annual revenue or EBITDA benchmarks. Um, maybe they put in or you know, as, a, as a group, we request debt service covenants on the seller carry component of a transaction. Um, you know, I see these seller carry notes being structured to mitigate specific risks a lot of the time. 
Maybe it's concentration with a specific customer. Maybe it's an employee that's licensed in a trade that our buyer doesn't have the ability to obtain for 12 or 24 months. Um, so with these seller carry notes, they can really be created to help bridge that gap between where buyer and seller may be. Maybe it's value. Maybe they're seeing uh, you know, a pretty sharp increase in revenues post COVID. Um, and the seller believes that those are sustainable. The buyer has some doubt using those seller carry with, you know, a forgiveness provision um, or a uh, provision that only the debt only goes into effect at a future date can be really helpful as well. Um, I've also seen a lot of transactions where to help mitigate some of those risks, we're looking at a 12 to 24 month escrow type of transaction where there's an escrow agreement drafted that has the conditions of release spelled out where those funds would either go back to the loan or to the seller as additional, um, additionally provisioned sales proceeds. So uh, with the SBA note, uh, it's important to make a caveat that earnouts are not allowed um, in any type of transaction, you know, SBA standalone or combination financing, an earnout can't be structured as part of the transaction. The SBA dictates that the sales price needs to be set and confirmed on the day of closing. Um, so something important to point out with that. So conventional financing, and Lamar, this kind of goes back to, to one of your questions. Um, conventional financing, you know, although not our go-to, um, is a great alternative for scenarios where SBA financing may not be eligible. Obviously, if SBA financing is eligible, it's a great product for the buyer, the seller, allows for much higher leveraging, you know, more in that range of four and a half to five times EBITDA when you're getting up to a 90% leverage on a transaction. But we have scenarios where we need to entertain and offer conventional financing. And with conventional financing, there are some flexible guarantee requirements. Typically, we'll look at that for minority owners or you know, more passive investors in the transaction. We still like to see that the owner operator is going to provide an unlimited guarantee, but maybe it's a partnership where there needs to be a pro rata cap at 115% of, of ownership based off the outstanding debt. These are gonna be a little bit shorter on the terms, looking at a five to seven year period, again, which is gonna bring down that leverage kind of into that probably 70% range. Um, we will look at loan covenants on these structured on an annual basis typically going to have a debt service coverage requirement, a leverage requirement to make sure that there's not uh, outside or additional debt being brought on. Um, I have seen some of these that if, uh, depending on the structure, there might be an excess cash flow recapture clause uh, to be able to bring the, the exposure down on a quicker basis based off of growth. Um, and really where we see a lot of this happening is in that ineligible transaction where a borrower may be too liquid. Uh, you know, we always want to provide financing to folks that have lots of liquidity, 
but the SBA being a government guaranteed program and is one that's based off of need, there are situations where borrowers are gonna have too much liquidity. So we'll look to conventional financing for that. Also, maybe our borrower and buyer already has ran out of SBA runway. Uh, in those scenarios, we have a couple of options. If there is some SBA runway left, we do have the ability to lower our guarantee. As I mentioned earlier, we start typically at a 75% guarantee is the maximum. But in a lot of scenarios, we have a borrower that has multiple companies and they may not have that 75% guarantee available. So we'll lower the guarantee or if they're completely out of it, we'll look to do conventional lending as well. Um, or maybe there's a structure that's been put together that just doesn't fit. It's not the buyer being ineligible, but it's the transaction. So the seller has to release 100% of ownership for it to be SBA eligible. We see a lot of transactions where the seller would like to roll 10, 15% or maybe even more than that with some structured tier buyout over the next three to five years. Um, maybe there's a true earnout provision where the growth on sales has just been so so elevated and astronomical that the buyer still want the seller still wants some of the upside on that future growth. So um, all of those are options within our conventional financing as well. We see a lot of it. Um, also scenarios where a buyer might be partnering with a private equity group or with a family office or an institutional backer where that individual is going to have 51% of the ownership and then the institutional investor is going to have 49%. Uh, obviously not an SBA eligible transaction, um, but those are great opportunities for us because you have an owner operator that's backed with you know, either a, a, a funded or non-funded sponsor or a family office or high net worth partnership. Um, so that allows us to be able to put those types of transactions together as well. On the on the eligibility piece, you mentioned a little bit about debt service coverage, but can you talk about the time period that you're thinking about and how you guys calculate debt service coverage or how you think about it generally? Yeah, so up until you know COVID, we would like to see two tax return years and an interim uh, in that 125 to 1.5 debt service coverage. Um, we, you know, we are common sense approach, we're realistic. So really we have oftentimes just are kind of throwing out 2020. You know, it's, it was such an anomaly with so many businesses, PPP, um, you know, there's a lot of one-time winners, a lot of one-time losers. So really what we are wanting to see at minimum is that it meets the debt service requirement in year to date, along with the prior year. Um, we will look back to 19 to see if they were, you know, close to break even, uh, that would be ideal. But we understand, uh, you know, companies today are not the same companies that they were pre-COVID. A lot of companies have found ways to be much more efficient, running leaner and meaner and have had increases to both their net and gross margins. So, um, you know, our debt service calculation for, the majority of our transactions, I'll, uh, I'll caveat that, are going to be in that 1.25 to 1.5 arena. When we get to some of our, you know, larger sponsor transactions, you know, that's going to be, they can look at, um, you know, we can look at a shorter period 
with those just given the low leverage amounts and I'll kind of dig into that later. One other question and this one came yep. from the audience but I think it's it, it, it speaks to this topic about the conventional loans. What type of assets are needed for consideration for these or are these true cash flow loans as well or what's the these are going to be true cash flow based loans as well. You know, we, we obviously are going to take a lean in the business assets that we're financing. Um, you know, all the business assets, inventory accounts receivable, both long and short term assets. So, you know, we're not going to look for that full coverage of one to one discounted collateral coverage on the conventional side. Uh, but it does bring up a, a, a good question going back to the SBA. The SBA is a great program. Uh, it doesn't have, the only collateral requirement that it has is that if a buyer or borrower of that 20% or greater has equity in real estate of 25% or more, it does require us as the lender to take a lien position on that. So um, it's a double-edged sword for folks that have equity in real estate compared to folks that don't. Um, that's always a tough question that I get from buyers, you know, that, uh, they're buying the business, they own the real estate with a spouse um, and having that conversation. But for our conventional, it's going to be the assets that we're acquiring as a true cash flow lender. Okay. So moving into kind of the conventional sponsor finance group, and we use this um, more for truly lower middle market and upwards uh, de designed for private equity family offices, strategic roll-ups where SBA is not going to be an option. Conventional doesn't make sense. Uh, this is going to be in the, the world of where we're seeing EBITDAs in that $3.5 to $15 million range. Um, the business profile that we're looking for in our conventional sponsor finance group is going to be non-cyclical. It's going to be a business that demonstrates you know, sustained earnings not one that has hockey stick growth just over the last trailing 12 or trailing six or 18. Um, looking for businesses that are gonna have customer diversification. Um, in these financing packages, we're typically staying away from brick and mortar retail types of transactions. Um, ideally, are looking for reoccurring revenue, service-oriented businesses. Um, a lot of these transactions and actually with any of our other transactions. We do also have the ability to provide ABL types of financing for working capital needs in conjunction with term debt that we're providing. Um, these types of transactions, you're gonna see the leverage ratios kind of in the senior debt at about three times total debt, you know, around that five times marker. Um, gonna see, you know, seven to 10 year amortizations. This is where we look at that debt service coverage of, you know, around one and a quarter um, in the last two periods um, on that. Are likely going to look at Q of E's for these types of transactions. Um, you know, and these buyers are institutional and such that this is not going to be their first transaction. Uh, so we're going to look at the sponsor on this, you know, what is their history, what businesses do they have under ownership, what businesses have they exited, what is their success rate, um, and things of, of, of that nature on that. 
some of the other special financing offerings that that we bring to the table as well you know as i mentioned lisa and heather we have a dedicated dedicated group that works specifically with search funders i know over the last you know four or five years that market has grown dramatically and so we have specialized lenders that do nothing but those types of transactions for buyers coming out of um, some of the ivy league schools the eta programs that are out there um, we also have a venture banking group that consists of about three or four people that have came from Silicon Valley Bank, have came from Square, and they're looking for high growth companies that are uh, looking for that monthly reoccurring revenue focus, are looking at businesses that have the Series A and Series B funding. Um, what's nice about our venture debt group is that they can be smaller transactions, more in that one to 10 million range where SVB and some of the other large venture debt folks are uh, don't come down that low. Um, we also have a USDA program. You know, this is much far reaching than, than I knew prior to coming over to Live Oak, but they have a business and industrial group, uh, community facilities, water and environment, um, we do C-PACE financing as well. So um, USDA right now has a food supply chain uh, program that they're offering for um, businesses that are asset backed. These don't work well for necessarily ownership transactions, ownership change of ownership, but do work when it comes to if you happen to have somebody that's you know out of runway looking at a large transaction has came to you for real estate or really large uh, equipment type of project financing help. So um, wanted to go through a couple of examples. I know these always help out, um, help get everyone's head wrapped around what this might look like in a real world scenario. So this transaction is an $8 million purchase price. Um, all of our transactions we like to make sure are adequately structured with working capital. You know, if the acquisition doesn't include a net working capital target amount between ARAP, inventory, or cash, we're happy to finance that as part of the transaction. We'll also roll in the closing costs. So $8 million purchase, 8.4 total project amount. Um, in this scenario, we have a buyer coming in with a 10% equity injection, going to be $840,000. We'll do a... SBA 7A loan for the maximum amount of 5 million. We'll then do a Live Oak conventional loan here for 2.5. Um, in this scenario, we could do a parapasu where we could end up with that 10-year term, allowing for you know, maximum cash flow repayment um, on that scenario. So that's kind of that doesn't get, and that this scenario doesn't include any type of seller carry financing either. So another example here, as yeah, I mentioned, quickly, John, because yeah. I, I got another question from um, somebody watching at home. So with the in your earlier slide with the Parapasu and the conventional combination options, uh, Live Oak is providing both the SBA loan and OK. Um, yeah. Is that a requirement or? Uh, or it uh, is on these types of transactions, but, you okay. know, I will go into our conventional. We do. Um, you know, a fair amount of unitranche lending where we will be the senior lender, first in, first out, senior lender. And then a buyer could partner with a mezzanine uh, group. And it, and it wouldn't have to be one 
um, in any relation to us. So there is that scenario where they could partner with a mezzanine. And you do kind of end up with that same combination financing. Um, obviously, the terms on the mezzanine debt are not going to be similar to what the SBA combination financing could provide, but you are going to be in a much larger scale. Maybe you're doing a $10 million senior debt, $15 million, $5 million mezzanine piece. So you're at a $15 million Unitronch facility on a $30 million or $35 million acquisition. So there, there is that scenario once you're kind of about more into that $3.5 million EBITDA um, where you get a combination financing um, just in a different in a different format. So this scenario is going to include a real estate acquisition. Um, you know, purchase price of the business 5.65. Real estate 1.2, again, working capital and closing costs. We have a $7.1 million total transaction, 10% on the equity side. In this scenario, we're going to use a 12-year blended term. Uh, and given the amount of real estate on this as well, we would blend that term on the, the junior debt piece as well, um, allowing for total financing of 7.1 on a Two loans with a, you know, each term on that is going to be 12 years as well. So, uh, again, in a scenario where we may have had more of the use of proceeds going towards the real estate, we can look up to 25 years on that. Some folks on this call might be familiar as well with the, the 504 program. You know, that's another avenue that we're able to use. A 504 program is designed just for real estate allows that project to go up to $12 million on the project, but does take into consideration any usage that is used for the 7A and that guarantee amount. Um, but again, we can use those on large transactions that have significant real estate related to them. Okay. So always happy to try and present, you know, opportunities on how we can help the advisors on this call um, you know, close more transactions, be more efficient with your use of time in talking to prospective buyers. So one thing that we are happy to do is work on buyer prequalifications, um, you know, where we will collect information uh, from these buyers and kind of put together, here's your high side, here's your low side, here are industries I would avoid, here are some of the assumptions that would be necessary for officer comp types of requirements uh, on businesses you can look at. Um, so something that we can assist you with there. Uh, on that same note, happy to look at offerings that, that you all have and put together what a financing package might look like. In order to do so, we'd look for the last couple of years of tax returns, the SIM, year-to-date financials, and then uh, if the SIM doesn't include information around, you know, any if there's any concentrations or CapEx expenditures that we need to be aware of, that's uh, something we would take into consideration. One thing that um, we have started to do on our general lending group and other teams within the bank have been doing is what's called an office hours, where if you have prospective buyers that really aren't sure where to start, uh, we offer weekly office hours every Tuesday 
12 o'clock Eastern, 10 o'clock Mountain Time for those buyers to come on and allow John Randall and myself to walk them through what the expectations are around buying a business, how it can be structured, what you need to be aware of from an equity, personal credit, personal income standpoint. Um, so it helps to uh, flush out and vet buyers that that may not be suitable for the types of transactions that that you're offering so happy to partner with that um, also you know for any of the firms that where we have individuals or even in contiguous states we're always happy to come in and sit down with you in person to try and see how we might be able to work with you and your clients um, and being able to help provide financing for transactions that that fit this lower middle market combination conventional or sponsor financing realm so all right that is all of the content that i have provided today and hopefully there will be some folks that have some questions that we can take i wanted to save about 15 minutes for that to be able to dig into yeah super helpful i've gotten a few questions but i also have some of my own that i'd like to address and and uh just first jump into the brass tax. What what's your rate or or what do you guys how do you think about it, I guess? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the rate, you know, especially on SBA and conventional, it's competitive. That's what I would say. I mean, our we don't try to present ourselves as the low price providers. I don't think that folks that do that um, are positioning themselves well. What we definitely bring to the table is added value, our expertise our focus and experience in M&A lending. You know, rates right now with Prime being at 475, you're gonna see stuff in the sevens. Um, you know, that's kind of where we're at, high sixes, low sevens. Um, you know, on conventional debt, you're gonna probably see it lower than that, probably in the sixes. Um, but definitely with the increase in interest rates, best, you know, treasuries and Prime, that rate has come up. What I always remind folks though, is that you know, even if the rate, rates are still historically low, when you look at a 40 year average, they are unbelievably low. Money is still cheap um, and, you know, financing debt with interest expenses a lot cheaper than equity dilution, especially when it, you know, most of these borrowers are looking to grow their company and sell them in the future. And so having that equity is far more important than another percent or so. The other piece is that, you know, our average closing period within SBA, SBA combination is only 40 days. And you compare that to somebody that might be 50 basis points or 25 basis points lower, but is gonna take, you know, 60 or 90 days, that's lost revenue. That's true EBITDA to the bottom line that someone loses out on by taking more time. And at the end of the day, you know, most strategic and smart intellectual buyers understand the value that we bring by closing quickly. Yeah. One another question just popped in. Um, what is your appetite for independent sponsor deals or, or what percentage of the work you're doing is is directed at independent sponsors? Yeah. So, you know, I would say in my world, um, you know, we could probably have a full another conference that has our independent sponsor finance team and then our our search funder team as part of that. Um, you know, out of, you know, call it $4 billion of, of production, I bet you, I would say that, um, 
you know, 18 to 20% of that is going to be in our SBA general lending group, which is that combination financing up to 10, up to, you know, roughly 9 million. Outside of that, uh, you'll see a couple hundred million dollars, you know, um, five to 10, probably 10% of that in our search fund group. And then you'll probably see another 10 to 15% um, in our sponsor, you know, in that three and a half EBITDA up from there. So it's, you know, we have the dedicated groups because there's enough demand to service those with folks that are specialists in there. Um, and as those deals come to fruition, you know, it doesn't do us any good not to loop in the experts in those fields. Right. That's a good segue to another question I just received. Can you expand on the search fund specialist funding? So what differentiates it or what makes it different when you're looking? For yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think within the search fund world, um, a lot of those folks um, are either, you know, could be funded or they're self-funded searchers. Um, and it's typically that you will see the, the self-funded searchers. Um, really, I think what differentiates it is they have institutional equity. Um, if there's institutional equity or if they classify themselves as a searcher, um, there's just a little different caveats on how those deals get structured. We see a lot of the search fund transactions get structured with preferred equity. Um, which kind of brings up, you know, um, sign up kind of some caveats around 20% ownership. Um, most of, you know, that search fund world, they they know everybody in that search fund world. They're coming out of a lot of the, the ETA programs where they're partnering through, um, you know, LPs with either, you know, staff or institutional sponsor backed uh, for that equity. So, and I know there's a lot of firms out there today that um, are funding searchers coming out of those programs. So um, there, there are some crossovers. Uh, there's no doubt about it. We work hand in hand with our search fund team to see where that those transactions can, can be best serviced. Another question just popped in. Um, any best practices for how you guys like to see working capital calculated? Um, I hear that one a lot. You know, I I like to see 45 days of working capital on most of the transactions that, that I'm part of. Um, it boils down to a lot of what the cash cycle is of the business. I think it's also important to ask the tough question of, hey, can I talk to my suppliers, your suppliers to find out, or at some point during my, my due diligence, am I gonna get the same terms? You know, am I going from net 30 or net 60 to COD? Um, which is impactful. Um, also understanding, you know, if you're offering 90 day terms to some of the customers and they're gonna lead you on, 45 days is what I tend to look at, um, but understanding what their cash cycle is, is, you know, we dig into that, especially if there's significant receivables and payables as part of the transaction. Hey, John, I don't know if Lamar has frozen there. Um, at least he got into like a nice frame, right? You know, I feel like when I freeze on these things, I always have a ridiculous look on my face. Oh, I think he might. Looks like he might be back. Excellent. Lamar, are you all connected? While he's working that out, John, I can pitch you another question because we had several come in. So we're going to try to get to as many as possible. So for your previous example, was the conventional 
portion um, uh, put together with the SBA 7A debt. I don't know. I know you. I know you turned your PowerPoint off. I don't know if it might be helpful to go back to that. Lamar, are you back connected? Yeah, I am. I'm sorry. This such is the peril of trying to continue <laughs> to work out on the road. If you can hear me now. Yes, everything looks and sounds good. Okay, great. Sorry about that. Um, what did I miss? John hit an important nugget that I'm not now not aware of. Yeah, I, I think this might be the slide. I think I'm sharing again um, on on this transaction with the real estate component. Um, we would have this would have been a a parapasu um, transactions. You know, conventional and parapasu are often you know intertraded. Um, you know, the parapasu it is a conventional loan that we are providing. And the difference is, are we in a parapasu position or junior lien position? In this transaction, we would have been parapasu. So the bank on its junior debt would have had a equal pro rata lien on the underlying assets, the real estate and the business assets. All right. Again, sorry, my Wi-Fi issues, but I'm seeing another question here. Um, can you talk a little bit about addbacks and how intermediaries should think about those when they're dealing with you? Yeah, I mean, I I think we kind of break them down into the the green, yellow, you know, the the stoplight mentality on that. You know, um, we're willing to take a look and include them to the available cash flow to service debt if they are truly one time. They can be supported and documented, uh, non ongoing. You know, when I think of those, I think of a possible legal, legal expense, a move, a one-time uh, repair to the building, um, you know, those sort of things. We also see a lot of accounting addbacks or changes when we're going from cash to accrual or accrual back to cash where we just want to compare apples to apples. Um, you know, they start to get much more difficult when you're saying, oh, you know, the personal credit card. Um, the way that I explain it to buyers is that there are likely a lot of SDE or adjusted EBITDA items that are going to benefit you personally. Everyone expenses the cell phone. Most people are going to do health insurance. Most people are going to do, you know, the auto insurance, a lot of personal expenses where it is a benefit to the buyer, but it is also not going to be cash flow that's added back. Those expenses are likely going to stay there. Um, you know, we already kind of talked about COVID. We are pulling out the PPP credits through the M1 schedule. So that's important to understand. We're pulling those out. But for, if 22 is an anomaly and doesn't, you know, is just out of whack, we're willing to throw that out completely. So the addbacks need to be supported and documented and justifiable. We're willing to take a look at them. You know, we see you know, non-working employees a lot of the time, you know, and obviously if they're not working in there, just provide us a W-2 and we can add that back as long as, you know, our buyer during their due diligence can validate that they're not actually, you know, providing any work or benefit to the to the business at hand. And you're, you mentioned your office hours. How, did, how does someone get signed up for that or how does someone attend? Yeah, I'm happy to send out the link. Um, I think we'll probably have uh, all the registrants that are on this call and happy to send out that link. So, Great. Yeah. All right. Well, I do want to be mindful of everyone's time. We're here at the top of the hour. 
Um, and John, I really appreciate your time today. And if anyone has any additional questions, I'm, unfortunately, I'm still seeing some come in here. Um, how's the best way to get a hold of you, John? Yeah, email, cell phone. I'm happy to get you in touch with the right person. So that is that is what I'm here for. Um, in that email, we'll send out with the office hours. All my contacts will be in there as well. Along, uh, I don't want you to have to go back to this recording, but I'm easy to get a hold of. Got it. Well, thank you for the time. I really appreciate it. It's been really informative, and I appreciate you uh, sharing this all this information with us, and also for your sponsorship of MA Source. We uh, we it's a great asset to the conference, and as well, it continues to pay dividends through these webinars. So, thank you again. Lamar, thanks a lot for the opportunity. I look forward to seeing all the members out in uh, San Diego come the fall. So I appreciate it and happy to help however I can. So thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for joining us for the M&A Source podcast. If you would like to learn more about M&A Source or would like to join, please visit M&A Source's website, www.masource.org, where you can find a wealth of information to include information about M&A Source's biannual conferences. Thanks again for joining, and if you enjoyed the show, we hope that you'll go to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Join us next time for another edition of the M&A Source Podcast.